0: Welcome to this week's podcast from Suncoast Church. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. We hope you enjoy this message. It's good. Uh, My name is Brendan. I'm one of the teachings pastors of this church. Uh, And Pastor Jonathan is away. He's off preaching down in New South Wales. He's been away at a youth camp down in Wollongong and now somewhere else in New South Wales that I don't even know where it is, uh, preaching this weekend. And so you're stuck with me uh, to introduce the series, What's So amazing about grace. Everyone say grace. It's been said it's one of the last beautiful Christian words still in the English language, grace. It's still like this untainted and lovely word. And while probably most of us say it as the, uh, as the prayer before a meal, uh, it's so much more than that. And we want to talk about that for a few weeks. I don't know if you've ever like met or, or had someone in your circle or your life, maybe your school and uni and, you know, someone in church maybe, um, that you just kind of had a, a bad vibe about. You said, I just don't like that guy. Hey, Jack, would you stand up for a second? I just want to, I thought I should make a, a dip. Like, you, you know, you, you see this guy around, he's, he's always wearing that red hat. I just, I just don't know about him. It's like, look, anyway, uh, and I just don't like that guy. And, you know you have this person, you have all these preconceived I mean, it's a demonstration demonstrative purposes only Jack's in my connect group um i'm I'm marrying him and his wife in a couple well I'm performing the ceremony, should i say uh for them uh, in a in a few in a, in eight weeks time I got the text message today, right eight weeks yep or we better sort this out um so I can do this to jack um and there's someone in your world you don't I haven't met you haven't met them yet, but you just get bad things and then all of a sudden, you know, you stay standing. What are you doing? Jeez. A bit rich. Um, and you, you, this person that you don't know yet, someone else comes and like, and like you say, Hey, have you seen that Jack? I just don't like him. And they're like, What are you, Jack? Do you know that that guy has six, has started six orphanages, right? And he has got missions in Cambodia and Mumbai and Thailand and everything. And someone tells you and completely blows your mind about this person and something changes your perception like oh wow i was so wrong all right you can sit down now i've made my point it totally changes your mind i think that i have for you tonight i'm going to read a story comes from the bible and i think it's like if you have perceptions and thoughts about what the christian faith is and many people do oh you know it is true outside of the church that you know christians have in many ways tarnished the reputation of christianity Right. So many um, things have been done by Christians. They're kind of known for what they vote for, vote against. Maybe they could be abrasive. Oh, those snotty Christians are always doing this. And, you know, people start to gather this idea of what Christianity must be like. But if someone had that perspective of like, what is, you know, um, oh, and they said to me, Look, I'll give you one scripture. I'll give you one story. I'll read it. Change my mind. Um, this is the story that I would give someone. I think it's one of the most subversive stories in the whole Bible. It's one of my favorites because it tends to flip most people's worldviews upside down. And it should certainly flip most people's view of what Christianity, what the gospel, and the message of Jesus really is. Are you ready for it? It comes from Luke. Chapter 18, you could like pull out a phone and read, um, or listen to me, I'll tell it, I'll tell it really well um, to try and make make up for that. Um, and this is a story that Jesus was telling to a group of religious people, kind of not unlike the setting we're all in right now, right? Like me and one or two of you are probably religious as well. Uh, and Jesus is, is talking to these people, and he says this, Two men,' everyone say, two men,' yeah. went up to the temple to pray.' One was a Pharisee and the other one was a tax collector. Now, let me just define these guys. So a Pharisee, in case you haven't come across one in the last couple of weeks, uh, a Pharisee uh, at that time was like a conservative or like an Orthodox Jew at that point. Like This kind of person was like a conservative religious person. Uh, it's not really, an, they're not inherently bad, they get a bad rap in the Bible because they're often associated with people who are full of pride, who really miss the point of most things, and, and Jesus had a lot of conflict with these guys in the Bible, but really they were just conservative and trying to follow through uh, on what the Bible said. Um, sure, they got things a bit backwards, but they were like the pious, probably arrogant um, religious people of that day, Okay. Now, over here, you have a, a tax collector. Now, uh, a tax collector in this time, in case you missed the cue, because they just kind of dropped tax collector, like you're supposed to know what that means um, in this scripture. Well, a tax collector is, was someone. See, Israel was currently an occupied territory, occupied by the Roman Empire. And like any occupying uh, force, what they want to do is extract wealth from the people. So what they would do is they would, they kind of had a, a cool or not cool, an ingenious um, method of extracting wealth which was to actually find locals and turn them against their family and friends by kind of bribing them to extract taxes from the people they know because who's going to know who's hiding money who's like got a cash business on the side Uh, the the local's going to know right they're going to find that person who who knows this guy is doing jobs on the side he's got a side hustle and he's not paying tax on it i know i'm going to get taxes from that guy so these tax collectors were like synonymous with a, a liar, a cheat, a traitor, a crook, someone that we would all agree, we all hate that guy, right? Like in modern times, a profession like that might be a... No, I won't say it. Um, a, a Like someone who runs like a cartel, uh, so, you know, someone who has like a kidnap and ransom kind of operation. Like, I mean, I say those things so cheerily. Um, but someone who is, is a pure crook, and we would look at and kind of go, this person is bad. I know just because of their profession, they're only doing that because they are a bad person. Two men go up to pray. Pharisee, religious, tax collector, the bad guy. And this is what the Pharisee said. He stood by himself and he prayed. He said, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. What a way to start a prayer. jeez! I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and even like this tax collector literally calls out the other guy. Says, I'm not even like this guy. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I have as in like I'm giving out of my finance, I'm giving that to the temple, right? But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven and beat his chest and saying and he beat his chest and said, God have mercy on me a sinner now everyone listening at that time to this story who had their preconceived ideas of religion would know how jesus should end this should end this story what the moral lesson of this parable should be jesus should go this guy, this is the religious guy. is following the commandments. Yeah, sure, he's arrogant, right? But he's the religious conservative guy following the rules and, and all of that. This is the guy that we should look at as the right, the correct, the just person in the story. But Jesus flips the idea on its head and says, no, no, no. This guy, this guy who was, who was the one that went home, justified. Now, Why is that? Why is it that Christianity, that the message of the gospel is able to do that, is able to look at this person, the bad guy, right? The guy that we all hate. I'm not talking about Jack um, or Lois. I'm just talking about, like, this bad guy here. Why is that? I, um, I think that life these days is very demanding. We live in a, a, a demanding time. If you are in life, you, it is demanding. Recent, st- you know, wellness survey done by the Australian Psychological Society, um, they found that around seventy-two percent of Australians. I'll go to the, the next next slide. Um, they found that about seventy-two percent of Australians um, reported that stress affects their physical health. Sixty-four percent their mental health. A, a study in the UK found that sixty percent of Ages eighteen to twenty-four, I think the same would be here. So sixty percent, six out of ten, six out of every ten said this, they have felt so stressed by the pressure to succeed that they have felt overwhelmed and even unable to cope. You want to hear what the top contributors are? Number one, money and finances, the number one contributor to stress. I mean, it's pretty clear. Uh, health, number two. Number three, family and relationships, the third biggest contributor to stress and pressure. Uh, and number four, and most ironically, um, is the the need to maintain a healthy lifestyle. It turns out, ironically, that avoiding stress is a very stressful activity, Um, and, and we are, uh, maintaining mental and physical health is so uh, endorsed and given out these days that I think people find this idea like, oh, I've got to get my mental health together, I've got to get my physical health together, otherwise I'm going to be a mess, or, or something like this. But I, would, I think that we live in an age where there is a lot of pressure around our lives. And if I was to kind of give three layers for why I think that is, I think that the first layer is that we all have expectations for ourselves, the kind of person I want to be, the kind of job or the kind of study that I want to do and a job that I want to get. I mean, that's a hard decision. You get through school and they say, hey, pick the thing that you're going to do forever um, you know, but make sure you like it and make sure it pays well and make sure that it's not going to be automated by robots in the next 10 years, right? Like, like that's a good decision to, to make when you're 18. Um, you know, pick, pick this stuff. Um, you, you know, you've got to think about finding a life partner. Am I going to marry? Am I going to, how am I going to stay married to that person? Am I going to have kids? What happens when I have kids? What school am I going to send it to? Raising kids, sleeplessness, um, raising older kids as they get older and and all of the pressure that comes on to to do everything in your life well, what kind of friends am I going to have, what kind of stuff am I going to have, am I going to buy a house, Um, then there's the everlasting balance of trying not to be a consumer but still having nice stuff, that's the hardest thing of all, I don't want to be a consumer kind of guy but I actually really would like a nice car and nice things uh, and nice clothes but I want to be sustainable or green or something. Um, that's, that's a hard pressure. The, it turns out I think the only way to do that is to have a lot of money. So once again, you get back to the money problem. Um, but all of these areas of life, like we set for ourselves so many expectations across every one of those things that we need to keep up with. But let me throw a second layer on that. It is clear that every generation has their their struggles, the things that make that generation hard. But I would say that for this generation, and by that I mean people who are alive today, social media is clearly a force for destruction, especially as it comes for comparison and pressure. You see, 30 years ago, or even 15 and 20 years ago, comparing with the Joneses or keeping up with the Joneses um, was something that you could do. Um, like the, the proposition was really that you would try and keep up with or observe other people who lived around you, who had a similar means to you, maybe family and friends, um, and you might compare to them. But generally speaking, your starting point was fairly similar. It wasn't actually too much to compare to. There was some kind of comparative pressure. But now, with social media, oh, man, you take your pick at the most beautiful, wealthy, well-put-together, smart people with, with handsome husbands and beautiful wives and behaving children and, um, you know, and a job that they love and a sustainable way of life that looks so awesome. And, you know, we get to select the best people to start comparing ourselves to, and that's really hard. But not only that, those people get to select the best parts of their lives to put up to you as well. Only the filtered Photoshop version of their best day of that week makes it up onto their profile, right? And this is not even, I'm not even talking about influencers, I'm even talking about friends as well. The compounding factor of social media means that the, the level of pressure that we experience by placing thing, um, you know, uh, ideas around ourselves is like magnified by social media and that comparative behavior that we make. But if you want me to make things worse, let me add a third layer. I'm only going to add three layers, so don't worry, it's not going to go for 45 minutes. Well, it might. Um, The third layer on top of that is, I mean, try being both of those and then being religious, Right, then be a Christian, let's say, on top of that. I mean, you don't need to be religious. You could just be completely secular but have a set of morals you want to live by. You've got to do all of this stuff amidst the comparison of everyone on social media as well as trying to do it in God's way or with sacrificial love or sustainably or green or ethically. And we start to say, I have to do all of those things, but I've got to keep a good and sweet attitude and all of it. I can't lie and cheat and steal, and I've got to be a moral person. Oh, man. No. No wonder life feels so demanding for so many people, so much so that, as I said, 60% of people aged between 18 and 24 are finding themselves almost unable to cope with the pressure of life. In Australia, it's up as high as 90% of adults, suggesting there is at least one era of their life that is highly stressful. And I think this is evidence for something that I I call a performance narrative. Can everyone say performance narrative? I've been doing a lot of the talking. You can do some for a little bit. Performance narrative, like a narrative, what is that? A narrative is like a framework for how we perceive life, perceive an area of life. And what I'm saying is that, like, we perceive our life as a performance. Right? What that means is everything that I do is, is being measured and building up to something. And when I, I tell that story um, of the two men, you know what what is their response to that? You see, this man came and he did, he brought his performance, He's sitting under that frame, brought his performance before God and said, What's the first? I thank you. I'm not like the other people, the other people who are failing at all these things. Like, I'm doing pretty well. I'm ticking boxes. And he's feeling very superior in the way that he's going through his life. And he, he, he feels that he is performing well. Ne- uh, sorry, next slide, please. Whereas this, this man, this man realized, and he exemplifies what is wrong with this, with the performance narrative and how destructive it is, how damaging it is, and how it is a completely incorrect way both to view the world and to attempt to live our lives. Wouldn't even look to heaven. He just said, God, forgive me for I'm a sinner. Why is that? What's he done? What has he recognized? He has, he has recognized what is so amazing about grace. About grace. Now, I'll, I'll get to that, but I'd, let me let me tell a story that I think probably helps us to understand a bit about grace. Um, there was a man by the name of John. Everyone say John lived in England in the 18th century, uh, and he uh, was a uh, he uh, grown up the son of like a naval officer. You can go to the next slide, please. Um, he uh, was the son of a naval officer, uh, well accustomed to being on uh, vessels. I mean, this is the this is a. Pirates of the Caribbean time, I guess you could say like, but uh, he had been stationed then on the West African coast as well and been working there. Uh, And at this time, it became uh, big business for vessels and captains to leave England with an empty ship and a crew to sail over to an African coast and to pull out guns, ammunition, uh, you know, liquor, and things like this, and begin making trades with chiefs of villages there in in Africa who would round up enemy enemy tribal groups. They would round them up. They would bring them before the captains of these vessels and the, the, the traders of these vessels who would purchase up to 600 of the best specimens, you know, they would say at that time, and begin loading them on their ships. Now, John, where does John come into it? John was the captain of one of these vessels. Of This activity, I, in looking in this, it's a, it's a kind of a famous story, In looking into this, like, I saw diagrams that would just make you shiver for the way that they used to pack people in. To get 600 humans into a ship like this, they would have to be laying down, um, they would be chained to make sure that they didn't commit suicide. And they would be laid down side by side, row after row, under the decks, like all the way around the ship. Um, And, you know, obviously on board, there's no sanitation, there's no toilet, there's no drinking, there's no eating. And for weeks, they would pass across across the Atlantic over to the New World, as it were, um, in in the just the most horrendous conditions, around twenty percent would die on every journey. What they would just throw the, the body straight into the ocean. As soon as there was an outbreak of dysentery, or someone just appeared ill, just straight into the ocean. The tree, you know, I, I, you know, you get the idea. I'm, I'm not, not trying to, um, you know, you know, I'm not trying to bring us all to that place. But John, this man, like the tax collector, was just a picture of, of that person. The worst, the worst guy. This was his livelihood. This was how he was making his money by treating humans worse than animals. Off the death and carnage of people captured and brought to a land they didn't know and sold, you know, sold again. Worse, like I said, worse than animals. Can you imagine what God felt to this man? Imagine what God felt. So and what happened to John? A story of John Newton was a man whose life was actually transformed. On a, on a, he was on a vessel one day. The vessel was actually about to sink. And he actually had a moment where he reached out to God and essentially like met God and had experience where his life was turned around, where he now viewed what he was doing, saying, this is actually disgraceful. His whole heart was turned around. John would actually become a minister, like a minister in the um, in the Church of England for the last 43 years of his life. He gave up this life, became a minister, started preaching to people, and it was eventually part of the movement to abolish the slave trade, right? And is famous uh, for writing the song. And now, now it makes sense why he wrote this song, Amazing Grace. He wrote the words, Amazing Grace, grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch, a man he was wretched a wretch like me, I once was lost but now I'm found, I was blind but now I see and he's famous at the age of 82 he said, my memory is nearly gone but I remember two things that I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great saviour our God is a God of grace, What does that mean? And when God looks down at John, when God looked down at this tax collector, he said, "This guy doesn't deserve it. In fact, what did John do He deserved the exact opposite. deserved to go to hell." So So despicable was this man, but God looked down, and in, you know, instead of giving him everything he deserved, he gave them everything he didn't deserve. He transformed his heart, his life from the inside out, and then what happened, and began to use Him to change the world, to change the despicable trade that was going on. And God is revealed over and over again in the Bible as a God of grace. In fact, the first time God actually self-reveals, like says his own name in the Bible, he says, "I am the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious." The first two words God used by him, He said, "I'm compassionate." And gracious. What are the imagine the words that God could have said? I'm the king of heaven, I'm the creator of the universe, I'm the righteous judge, I sit amongst the stars, I'm I'm the, the builder of worlds, whatever God could have chosen. But he said, I, this God, me, Yahweh, I am, I am compassionate and gracious. And nowhere else do we see the grace of God like we do on the cross. But God looked at this earth, looked at all of us in our mess and our sin. And by his grace, Romans 5 said that very rarely will someone die for a righteous person, which is though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in this. Then while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let me, um, let me just go straight in and throw a definition like on the stage. I'm going to give two tonight. It's kind of like part A and part B to define grace as the characteristic of God's favor toward people who do not deserve it, like the tax collector, like John Newton, like all of humanity, and like me, like you, people who who don't deserve it. Over and over again, God has revealed in the Bible, the God that we worship is a God of grace, and it's His characteristic. And so let me just uh, um, let me just even read a scripture here. This comes from Ephesians chapter two, verse eight, if you're you know taking notes about this. It says, "For it is by grace, everyone say grace. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. it's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by your works, so that anyone should boast. You see, that is the Christian message, and what is so ironic is that... Christianity in in many ways has produced a lot of these people who get arrogant in their performance, saying, Look how good my performance is, look how great I'm doing, look at all the boxes I can tick as a as a Christian. But it's kind of ironic because a superior or a proud Christian is an oxymoron. Because to be a Christian is to actually admit that I am a sinner. Is to come to God and say, "I, you know what, my works, my performance, it's, it's not good enough to save me. It's not good enough to find favor in the sight of God. But to be a Christian is someone who stands here and says, God, have mercy upon me, have grace upon me. It's the ultimate check and balance for Christians who should never be arrogant to be one. You've actually admitted that you're not, you're not perfect. That's the, the fundamental admission of Christians. So what does this do to our um, performance narrative? It completely cancels out any sort of performance narrative because the performance before God is, it, it means nothing. God does not desire that. What, what is it then? It's a calling. The things that God has on your plate to do, all of those, the, the layers and the things that are there, you know, I, I'm telling you now If you have constructed a performance narrative around your life, if you have looked at every area from partner to job to career to money to future to family to friends to stuff to consume whatever it is, and have started to build expectations around your life as a performance, it's time to reevaluate that. Reevaluate that in the light of grace, because what God has given you is not a set of performances that you need to get up, but a calling. And He has called you to each of those areas. Of course He has. He has a calling before you. And it may look a bit different than a lot of the things that you'd set up. But yes, God definitely has calling for you. Right? And th- let me get then to definition number two of grace. Because, get, because grace is more than just a characteristic. Grace is therefore also God's empowerment. Everyone say empowerment. Empowerment toward us to fulfill His calling. Let me read another scripture to you. Walk worthy. This comes from Ephesians 4. Walk worthy of the calling God has given you. And a few verses later it says, but to each of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. In First Peter it says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace. You see, God's grace, his characteristic, where he looks at people who do not deserve to be shown mercy, to be redeemed, to be restored, to be used in his ultimate plan, to be saved. That's you and I. Not only is that his inbuilt disposition and his characteristic at all times, it also encompasses his empowerment. And He empowers us. He gives us calling. He gives you gifts. He gives, given you a life to lead. He has given you purpose. And, and I tell you what, there is important stuff for you to do. Imagine with John Newton, this guy. Every, he would have had every excuse. I've been the captain of a slave vessel. No one is going to buy my story. No one. I'm, and I've got to retire and get out of this. No one's going to believe me. Right? He would have had every excuse. I can't. I've seen too much. My mind is just tainted, like I've been destroyed. Um, I, you know, all of these things. What's, what does God do? give him a new calling? But it's, it's better than that. God empowers him for that calling. Because even under that framework of calling, um, it still is the case that you and I will find things incredibly difficult at times, like being a parent. It's difficult. It's a difficult thing to do. But my children, you know, it's, it's hard. You haven't seen my kids, right? Um, no, I'm saying for you, I haven't seen your kids. Um, and, and raising children and the things that they have some kids have special needs, some are harder to deal with, you know, can be a huge, but some people have children that could be perhaps disabled. And the calling to be a parent is incredibly hard. That's a hard thing to do the calling in front of you for the life God has for you. There will be challenges. There will be things that cause you to stress. There will be things that cause you to feel inadequate. Absolutely. Trust me, God has callings on your life that are probably right now looking too hard for you. But I, I just can't do it. I have too much dysfunction. I mean, that looks too hard. I mean, we're able to find excuses for the things that sit in front of us to do. But let me tell you this. This is the good news. That God didn't call you because you were able. God called you because he is. God God has not called you because you are wise. God has called you because he is wise. God hasn't called you because you are strong, because he is strong. God hasn't called you because you're full of great ideas, because he is full of great ideas. God hasn't called you because you're patient. He's called you because he is patient. God hasn't called you because you're amazing. It's because he is amazing. Right? And it's His grace acting in us that empowers us to fill His calling. Uh, it's, it's an amazing, amazing comfort that Christians get to... I'll have a keyboardist come up. That'd be awesome. Um, that As a Christian, you are never left to your little package of resources. So often we look at the calling, the things that sit in front of us to do, And we look at the stuff that we have. you ever been in that situation? And you think, I I don't have the tools for this. I don't have the stuff to get through this. I've got too many dysfunctions. I've got things that are wrong. I'm insecure. Like I'm not smart enough. I'm not wise enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not patient enough. I'm not hardworking enough. I'm not devoted enough. I'm not good looking enough. I'm not good. I'm not gifted in that way. right? I don't have that gifting. But I'm telling you, you are not left to your own tiny package of resources. You have all of the resources of heaven behind you when you walk in the calling of God. God has graced you, He has gifted you, He goes with you. And God will not send you into something He's called you without going with you and without gracing you. It is possible. Uh, That we could walk into areas of our life that we're not called to, we're not graced for. That's that's something that could happen. Uh, It is also possible that you are yet to discover some of your calling, some of your gifting. Some of you here are relatively young tonight; you still have years to go. I, 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 you know, I'm about thirty-four now. I think even in the last couple of years, still discovering giftings, and I think they they change right? They grow, they develop, and they will for you too. And, and some of the best ways to find out, like if you're still thinking, I don't, actually don't know what they are, I don't know what I'm good at, or what I'm gifted at. Um, I, let me encourage you, find someone maybe a little older, a little wiser than you, and just ask them, hey, look, I don't, you know, it's hard to do this in Australia because we don't like to, to find or talk about the things that we're good at, right? Like Australians are not, are not the thing that we do culturally. But I, and it's not really about that. It's not about finding so much what you're good at as much as what God has graced you for and called you for. And you may very well be very good at that. You may be gifted. But sit down with someone a little older, a little wiser than you, and start to ask them, Hey, I'm trying to just understand my calling. I'm trying to understand the things that, that I feel God has, has graced me for. Can, can you help me? Another great way to do that is actually just to start getting involved. Start serving. Find areas. Don't like necessarily just sit back and wait for the grace um, like you know, choose to appear out of thin air. Oh wow, I have a gifting in that. Sometimes it's just to go, start serving. You know, start serving at a church, start serving at the daily bread, start volunteering somewhere. Start just start working. Start out working various gifts, and they will begin to become apparent to you. You'll begin to say, "Hey, wow! I never, I never realized I had a gifting in that area. But I think, I think I do. I think God has graced me." And you know. The reality is you, you're going, you know, you and I, because we are, we're sinners, we're not perfect, you're going to fail. But there's, in God's grace, there's forgiveness for failure. We're going to lose hope, but there's God's encouragement for that hopelessness. We're going to find storms, but there's God's peace for those storms. You're going to be angry, but there's patience for your anger. We're going to be disappointed, but There's hope. And just, you know, to be be practical and start saying, okay, Brent, it's a good kind of spiritual lesson, I get it, but what does it, you know, kind of look like tomorrow morning at like nine o'clock, it's a Monday morning, where's God's grace then? I love to ask those, where's God right now? Like, where's He, like, in this moment? Um, it's easy in church, like, we're all kind of here, like, doing a God thing right now, but like, you know, at school, at university, at work, or something, like, trying to find those moments where God is active. Um God's grace often arrives in, you know, I would say uh, in a spiritual way is kind of where it starts. The Christian belief is that you and I have a spirit. Right, There is a part of you that is, that is your spirit that God connects with. If, you are, if you're not a Christian or completely secular, that's something you wouldn't believe is truth. But as Christians, we believe that, that we have a spirit, that God speaks to that spirit. And it's a real part of you. And what does that look like? Maybe you're in a moment where you are just completely at the end of yourself, all out of ideas, no idea what to do, completely just, I'm ready to give up. And then, bam, out of nowhere, an idea, some wisdom, some inspiration pops into your mind and you're like, well, that didn't come from me. That's God's grace at work in you. You start a new task that you feel called to do and all of a sudden a gift arrives and you find this is effortless. I'm able to do this and I feel strong and I feel confident in that where I shouldn't feel confident. That is God's grace at work. Perhaps in a moment of parenting, um, you are overcome with anger and a lack of patience towards children. Uh, But just in a moment, you feel God's grace just provide patience. And you start to breathe out and say, I can do this. It's okay. I love my... My son, even, you know, he put texture on the couch, but I still love him. You know, true story last weekend. Um, God's grace in those moments where he gives you patience when you shouldn't have it, when he gives you peace in the middle of anxiety, God's grace is at work. God empowers us supernaturally, supernaturally by his grace. And that starts to sound like weird, but it's true. God has graced you, the person sitting in your chair right now. Let me end with one more scripture. I think this is an important point to make, and I'll I'll close with this. This comes from 2 Corinthians in chapter 12. So the apostle Paul, another story of grace. I mean, like, we could go into his story. This guy was a a, a, he was murdering Christians, right? That was what he was doing um, before God turned his life around and used him to write like two-thirds of the epistles in the New Testament. Probably the most influential author of all time. I mean, it helps to be writing stuff that gets into the Bible. Um, but you know, he—you know—this guy was a Christian murderer who became the—you know—one of the most incredible, empowering authors to the church of all time. That's grace. I mean, his his is a life of grace, and this guy, who knew everything about grace, had experienced it. He 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 wrote and he talked about. This experience of having a thorn in the side, something that he was struggling with, it asked for it to be removed, but it just was a continual struggle for him. And, and God spoke to him and said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, I worry what you just heard me say was that, that God has a lot of grace. God has a lot of grace, right? I tell you what, you or I are in trouble if God just has a lot of grace, right? Because you and I are all a lot of bad. We're capable of a lot of bad, you know, and I'm still going, right? Like it not being perfect in this life, still not having it all together. Even after being a Christian for a long time, still not having it all together, still not capable of having it all right. And if God just had a lot of grace, I'd be like, okay, well, like any day now it's going to run out, right? Like any day I'm going to get to the end of God's grace. But that's not what God says. He doesn't say, I haven't got a, I've got a lot of grace. He says, I have sufficient grace. God has more than enough grace. And you are not outdoing God. You are not outdoing God. God has enough grace for you. He has sufficient grace for your life to redeem and restore you if you are far from God and want to come back to God, God's grace, His disposition towards you is one of saying, come home, come home, come back to me. You're not too far gone. My grace is sufficient to draw you back to me. You can be saved. You can be in relationship with me. You can, I can be your savior. You can have a new life. You can be forgiven. You can be restored, and you can be a son or a daughter of God. That is open. His grace is sufficient for that. If you are someone who would consider yourself a Christian already and you look at the calling you have, I'm telling you God's grace is sufficient for your calling, for all that he has called you to do. He has enough grace, not a lot of grace, enough grace, more than enough grace for you, for your failures, for your shortcomings, for the ambitious things that are set before you to do in this lifetime, in this side of heaven. God has grace for you and sufficient. I love if we could all stand together. I'm going to close just in prayer. And if, if, this, if this message strikes you at a place where you are saying, I, I want to come back, um, I'm going to pray for that group of people as well. If you're here, you could be listening to this online. Um, and I just want to put that invitation out there that if you are what you might say, I'm, I'm just, I'm not, I'm far from God. God doesn't even know me. I'm telling you, he does know you, cares about you. You're not too far away. And he's inviting you back, back to him, to know him as your God for, for a new life. For all of us here, I'm going to pray that you would not only know God's grace, know that it exists, but you would walk in it and you would know its power in your day-to-day life. Let me pray. God, we thank you for this moment. We can just be here together as a church, as friends, as family, and look to you, our God, our Savior. And we stand here like this, this man, like this tax collector, and we look to you and say, God, have mercy and grace for us. I pray, God, for every person who is wanting to make a, a maybe a fresh decision, a new decision, another decision to come back and to know you, God. I pray, God, you would just meet them right now. Meet them right where they are. May they know your forgiveness. May they know that you are close to them. May they know a new life in you as a Christian, as someone who's given their world over to you. May you be their Savior, their Lord and their friend in Jesus' name. And for all of us as we go forward from here into workplaces, into university, into school, into family, into calling, into careers, um, into our relationships in every area of our life that you've called us, God. May we go in your grace. May we know that you cover us. May that we know that you protect us, God. And may we know that you are always reaching out to us, always forgiving, prepared to restore us in Jesus' name. And everyone said, can you applaud the Lord tonight? Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are truly blessed by what you heard. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au.